At 27 years old, Raven Tetsuo is a culinary prodigy. Tetsuo has worked in numerous three-star Michelin restaurants around the world, including the famed Ultraviolet in Shanghai, Le Petit Nice in Marseille, and Alinea in Chicago. Over the years, Tetsuo has become a renowned advocate for cooking with insects, earning him the nickname Iron Man for his resolve and iron stomach. In this riveting series, Tetsuo explores the rise of entomophagy in elite restaurants across Europe and North America. If that's what you came to hear about, that's amazing. You read Liz's mind. Here we're going to talk about Tetsuo the Iron Man. Up next. back i'm tyler i'm danny and thanks again to liz for the summary synopsis whatever you want to call it (laughs) of a series that does not exist at all because today we're here to talk about the fucking japanese cyberpunk body horror movie tetsuo the iron man i mean i think a couple people out there would probably consider eating insects just to be as nasty but maybe not as weird as this movie gets (laughs) yeah it's up for debate with that but I still like her takes. I think they're funny. It would be interesting to see a Tetsuo I, the Iron Man Iron Chef. Edition. I want to see that, right? <laughs> I still want to see that really badly. So thanks again, Liz. We're going to continue doing that as long as I can continue getting synopses That's out so of That's so awesome. So if you're listening, I'm going to hit you up for some more. Just letting you know. <laughs> um, Hell yeah. I guess before we get into Tetsuo the Iron Man, do you have any news from your week? A little bit. On the personal front, I suppose, is I'm almost done with Doctor Sleep. I told you about that. I've been picking up some Blu-rays throughout the week that have been coming in, so that's really cool. got to watch The House That Jack Built last night, the unrated version of it, so that was kind of cool. Yeah, so I got to see that last night with my sister and Jeff, and just watching some basketball, shit like that. How about yourself? Shit, I, I haven't been doing much at all. I fucking I picked up an extra shift at work, so <laughs> no. I went and did that this weekend. Not an extra. I get to be off like four days. That's pretty sweet. Weekend, Hell yeah. so, which is perfect because fucking Shazam and Pet Cemetery come out, so sweet. I'll be able to fit both of those in next weekend. I'm super stoked about that. I'm super stoked about the fact that I have a theater just like ten minutes away now. I know, like man, that's, that's been such a game changer for nice. me. I mean, obviously, as we've said in the past, go support your local theater and shit, but now I have a theater just like 10 minute walk away, whereas before it was like a two hour walk away because I walk everywhere. (laughs) Well, the nice thing about where we're at here in Missoula is that we do have a local theater and a bigger theater, so we get the luxuries of both. Right. But otherwise, I mean, that's it, man. Like, I worked an extra day this week, so I'm just fucking tired. Yeah, that's understandable. Been, like, doing nothing. I was slated to do that, and then I was told that there was enough people on board, so I was like, yeah, there well. Was. Yeah, there was. <laughs> I was like, yeah, break my heart and let me sleep in tomorrow. <laughs> so it worked. But, uh, but yeah, outside of that, man, I do have some interesting bits of news on the horror front. Actually, a lot of news, which is really cool. So... First thing I'll lead off with is we're fans of Phantasm, and Phantasm just a few days ago, actually on March 28th, celebrated its 40th anniversary. Oh, I saw that. I almost like texted you just to wish you happy 40th Phantasm. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I've been keeping up with it. So for those who are fans, much like ourselves, 
is that if you missed out on the previously released and sold out box set from Well Go USA Entertainment, well, good news is this fall they're releasing their 40th anniversary, of course, with a new limited collector's edition Blu-ray set, and it's complete, meaning that it has all five films. Okay. So what's the kicker? Well, the new set will include an officially authorized full-scale replica of the original Phantasm Killer Sphere prop. Oh, dope. Yeah. So along with that as well... Do they have a price on that yet? Not yet, because it's still a little early, but... Uh, are, you, some, are you already planning on putting aside money? Ah, oh, damn. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, All I've already five got five of them. Of them. <laughs> uh, that's true. You already have them, but... I mean, it'd be nice to have this set and maybe sell the others, so we'll see, but... Some of the other stuff that's oh, there included... there you go. Yeah, just sell the others off to finance this one. I, I might be able to do that. <laughs> uh, the way that these prizes are fetching. So, one of the things that I'd seen that is an addition, of course, to it being a box set is that it's packed, of course, with new extras. Some of these are going to be a meticulous 4K restoration of a film we just recently reviewed, and that's the 1988's Phantasm II. And it's personally supervised by Coscarelli. Oh. Yeah, some of the other stuff that it's included is a newly created Dolby Atmos attack of the original Phantasm and a new longer feature-length documentary on the making of Phantasm Ravager. Damn. And you get the choice of either getting it in a black box set or a white marble box oh, set. You have to go for the white marble, right? Dude, so like, sweet. Yeah, the mausoleum, all mm-hmm. that good shit. Yeah, so I was excited about that. So for friends, check it out. All right. Now, this is something we've talked about a couple of weeks back because the cast of The Craft had a reunion for the first time in, what, like 23 years? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, because it came out in 96. Yeah, all right. So the good news is is that Blumhouse and Columbia Pictures are doing a remake. And we've learned that Zoe Lister-Jones will be writing and directing The Fresh Take. So that's really cool. She's done a lot of films, a couple of different TV series. It's going to be interesting to see what Blumhouse does with this, too, because, you know, they're doing pretty well, man. Probably won't be a big budget, but I would imagine it's probably going to do pretty well in the box office. I mean, with this news, that's awesome and all, but can I just take this opportunity right now to call them all on their shit just a little bit? Because this has all made some news for some other reasons, too. Continually, when they announce like this reunion get-together, they keep announcing the three white girls oh. and not mentioning Rachel True at all. Yeah. So I want to shout out Rachel True. Way to go for being in the craft. Yeah. I'm not going to forget you because you're one of the main fucking characters. But continually, there's been, like, a lot of outlets, including, I think, like, one of the official, huh. like, announcements where they were, like, the three white girls and, like, an ancillary cast member uh, and leaving off the fact that Rachel True was going to be that's there. That's douchey, dude. Rachel yeah. True, she's a babe. She was also Mary Jane in one of my favorite stoner comedies in Half-Baked. Right. Right. So, yeah, fuck yeah. Even more I reason. Mean, <laughs> uh, uh, she's a part of that horror noir documentary, too, which is really cool. So, Yeah. Yeah, that is, f- that's douchey that they do yeah, that Yeah, I'm her. pretty sure, like, when they originally announced it, and maybe this wasn't the same announcement, but there's been quite a few announcements lately, and so this actually has all been making the news for worse reasons yeah, than the fact weird. that it happened. Huh. But I think they keep announcing, like, Robin Tunney, Feruza Balk, Nev Campbell, and then, like, Skeet Ulrich. Yeah, what the fuck? Skeet, 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 skeet. Yeah, no. Rachel True definitely needs to be mentioned. I mean, yeah, she's one of the four. Yeah. Come on. Anyway, so I just had to throw that in there because I knew that that was going on, too. I completely understand. I just wanted to be like, hey, Rachel True, we see you. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. We recognize. 
right, so something that we just watched before we actually recorded is for an upcoming film, and that is Jim Jarmusch's and Bill Murray's zombie film, The Dead Don't Die. So it's getting a June 14th release. It is chock full of some awesome cast members, and it's quoted as the greatest zombie cast ever disassembled. So along with Bill Murray, we've got Kylo Ren. Kylo Ren. <laughs> Kylo Adam Ren, Driver. Adam Driver. Tilda Swinton. Chloe Sevigny. Steve Buscemi. Danny Glover. Caleb Landry-Jones. Rosie Perez. Iggy Pop. Sarah Driver. The RZA. Selena Gomez. Carol Kane. And Tom Waits. That's fucking ridiculous. That, I mean, we're going, right? Oh, fuck yeah. It looks good. It looks like a no, pretty a good comedy. Charmish flick. Do you think yeah. it's going to get wide release just because of Ooh, the cast? It's a focus features too, so we might be able to see it at the Roxy. That's what I'm thinking. Like, I'm not thinking we're going to see this at the AMC. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay with that. I mean, if it is, that's cool. If not, it's okay yeah, too. Yeah, I mean, that's cool. Like, I kind of hope so because that just gives them the opportunity to rake in more money than just yeah. from like art uh-huh. house theaters. And he probably <laughs> deserves it because Jarmish is always churning out Dude, really good of, movies. Some of my favorites that he's done, and I was looking, I was like, I wonder if I'm familiar. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm totally familiar. Is Coffee Ghost and, Dog? Ghost. <laughs> I know we talked about it. Damn. Is I actually, I like Coffee and Cigarettes a lot, mm. which makes sense when you look at who's in Coffee and Cigarettes. And of course, throughout his career, he casts, it seems like, you know, similar people, like the Rizzas in Coffee and Cigarettes, Bill Murray. Tom Waits is in it as well, so yeah, it's really cool. Oh my god, and it seemed like just a delightful deadpan <laughs> yeah. comedy. Yeah, really. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of how it came off. I like um, it. It looks good. I think it's going to end up being really dark. It kind of hinted at the fact that like they're going to kind of realize there's no end to this. It's just waiting till they die. It's, they're stuck. <laughs> they're yeah, <fucked>. <laughs> it <laughs> happens. The, even the trailer sort of seemed to get at that. Like there was a really dark undercurrent to it. Yeah, but... it'll be interesting. I think it's going to be a fun film. Okay, so the next thing I've seen is that there's another upcoming film, and this is done by Joe Begos, who's also done Almost Human in the Mind's Eye, and he has put together one hell of a leading cast. So this movie is entitled VFW. One of the people who is starring in it is Stephen Lang. He was one of the leads in the movie Don't Breathe, which I highly recommend if you haven't seen it. But along with Stephen, we have William Sadler. He was in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey as the Grim Reaper. You might have also seen Fred Williamson in From Dusk Till Dawn. Martin Cove's in it. He was a part of Cobra Kai. David Patrick Kelly. He was a part of The Warriors. And George Went was a part of Cheers. So along with them, you have Sarah McCormick, Dora Madison, Tom Williamson, Travis Hammer, Graham Skipper, and Jesse Cove. So what it says here is that Fred and his military buddies must defend their local VFW post and an innocent teen against a deranged drug dealer and his relentless army of punk mutants. Hmm. So they said it's kind of a mix of Night of the Living Dead and The Wild Bunch. So if you're familiar with those, might be a good little nod. So this news hasn't officially broke, but it's within... As long as the trend continues and it doesn't seem like it's not going to, I suppose a congratulations is in order because I know that we both liked us. Oh, yeah. And within... 24 hours wow. of us recording this right now, it will surpass Get Out's box office. That's saying a lot. Considering... And it's only been out, what, like a week and a half? Yeah, which is pretty awesome, dude. So it's probably going to rake in even another $100 million oh, before easy. it finishes its theatrical so. run. Yeah. So 
I mean, that's astounding. That's great. I mean, we are, we've already been in a great horror trend. I just really like seeing that big box office numbers on a movie like that because yeah. it is a very complicated movie and it's one that's going to get people you thinking. Know, that's a very and good I've point. already seen so many think pieces coming out about this movie yeah. that have even pointed out to things to me that I've missed. And it's not even just like letting somebody else's opinions influence me. It's just like, oh shit, I missed this because I don't have this experience. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't immediately recognize Howard as being one of the HBCUs. Yeah, I see what you mean. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But throughout the whole first half of the movie, Gabe is wearing like Howard gear. Yeah, Howard University and all that <laughs> stuff. I mean, it makes sense. I understand that. Mm-hmm. But there is a lot of layers to that film, and it's a lot to digest. And it's one of those you definitely have to watch it more than one time to kind of fully appreciate what it's worth. I mean, you can appreciate it at the surface level, but it's a great film. But you're right. I think having a film like this, it's going to lend its hand to other directors and writers to produce films that are a little bit more on the thinking man's scale. I mean, I think we sort of touched on that a little bit last week when we were talking about Hereditary as well, is that ultimately, like, one of the amazing things about that movie is that it is a lot more complicated and subtle than most mainstream horror. No doubt. And yet was still super successful. What, what I think it also does is it lets the mainstream know, too, and big studios know, too, that horror fans aren't just into slashers and gore and all that stuff, too. It's like, we like good stories. You know, we like it to be complex just as well. Yep. So I just see this overall as a hugely good thing huge win. for, I mean, multiple reasons. Just as much as that movie is about multiple things, yeah. there's multiple reasons why us doing well is a good thing. Oh, so. man. I know it. And it's fun because, once again, Blumhouse and studios like A24 are just hitting home runs, dude. Mm-hmm. So I'm happy about that. I've got three more bits of news, and then I can kind of wrap up what I've learned this week. So we're big fans of GDT. and. Right. He's hosted an event to preview footage from Scary Stories of Tale in the Dark, of course, which he helped co-write and produce for director they Andre They showed Overdahl. one of the segments, didn't they? Yeah, well, yeah. I read a little bit about that. Yeah. So, well, here's something cool, because uh, we had mentioned that he and director Jennifer Kent, who we reviewed her film The Babadook, they've met, of course, in private to discuss a secret project, and it has been rumored, and he's kind of let a little bit of the cat out of the bag, but... He said that she has been confirmed to helm part of the anthology series that he's developing for Netflix. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's really cool. He said that uh, she's adapting a story that is based on a concept that I came up with, and this is Del Toro, of course, not me. (laughs) But uh, she's writing and directing it. And he's also trying to get in another director, uh, Issa Lopez, who's directed Tigers Are Not Afraid. Apparently, she's been super busy, and she's in high demand right now, but it looks like there's a possibility... He's getting his Pinocchio, right? I know we've talked about that, and I think so. Here's something, too, along those fronts, which is really neat. It says that he has mentioned that he has two movies that are neck and neck. He said, of course, one that has been talked about, and the other one hasn't been talked about. He hasn't mentioned which one yet. But, yeah, we have talked about his Pinocchio movie, which would be pretty fucking dope. Which, that's going to be Netflix, if I remember right. So I'm stoked about that whenever we get that. No doubt. All right, so the other bits of news that I have is we have talked about the fact that A Quiet Place is getting a sequel. It's being directed by John Krasinski, and it has been reported that Killian Murphy is now in Toxic Star in the sequel. I love me some Killian Murphy. I'm all for this. Even though yeah. I still haven't seen A Quiet Place, I'm still all for this. Love me yeah, some Killian Murphy. Yeah, I mean, Murphy. it's not a bad film. Uh, for me, it's like 
I enjoy it for what it's worth, but I wasn't like totally blown away by it. But regardless, the nice thing about it though is Emily Blunt, Millicent Simmons, and Noah Jupe, they are all reprising their roles, and it has a date slated for May 15th of 2020, and this okay. is being released by Paramount. All right, and the last bit of news is kind of a big news, especially if you're fans of this particular franchise. So we know that Chucky, of course, from Child's Play, is getting a reboot, and he is being voiced by none other than Mark Hamill. Also, if you haven't already seen that bit of news, I don't know what fucking rock you've been hiding under, because <laughs> that's all I've seen dude. all over the internet. God, I think I had like a weird like fucking advert for it pop up when oh, I was yeah. watching YouTube. Like Everything that I saw yesterday, whether it was on Facebook or just any social media, yeah, it was all over. Which suddenly has me more interested in that movie. I wasn't that interested in that movie. Yeah. I'm interested in the series they're doing. Likewise, likewise. Because Don Mancini, right, mm-hmm. is on board. Yeah, he's for not sure. on board with this, right? Exactly. Yeah, this is like, mm, this is the child's play we don't want to talk about. Right, but then they got Aubrey Plaza. Yeah, and now they have Mark Hamill. That's fucking big, dude. Uh, <sighs> it's probably still gonna be. Eh. I'm probably still not gonna see it in the theaters, yeah. but now they have me at least considering it. Yeah, exactly. Maybe a VOD, but we'll see. <laughs> but yeah, I'm kind of excited. Just in the fact, you know, we grew up with Mark Hamill. We know he's a great voice actor. Amazing voice actor. Yeah. When I read the Joker in comic books, yeah, his Joker his from the animated series is what I hear. Yeah, exactly. And it probably doesn't help. Maybe it does. In the fact that he voices the Joker in all these video games, DC right. video games for Batman. So, yeah, it's really cool. But yeah, those are some of the bits of news that I, you know, caught. Thought it was worth talking about. And Outside of that, man, yeah, it's been a pretty decent week. I can't complain. Yeah, uh, I agree. So let's get into the guts and bolts. <laughs> guts and bolts. Yeah, this, this is, is a, that's way appropriate for this totally movie. Totally appropriate. Of Tetsuo the Iron Man. and bolts tetsuo the iron man we're going to try to keep spoiler free and just talk about who and what went into this movie and with this movie there's not all that much to talk about i no. mean there is but there isn't there's not that many characters no it's okay it's, You're right, it's a 67 minute long movie yeah i think we'll be surprised by how much we'll talk about this but you're right it's a film that came out in 1989 this i don't know if we mentioned that this is our 110th episode as well, which is pretty wild. Oh, I don't think we did. Okay, what was that, 110? 110. Damn. No, dude. It's pretty wild. We rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there for sure. That's all I can say is we rock. Y'all should listen to us more. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got 109 previous episodes you can check us out on. That's right. Okay, cool. All right, so <laughs> was this, 89? 1989. Yep. Japanese start with synopsis, right? Synopsis. A real synopsis this time. A real synopsis. Oh, God. I mean, I'm not even sure what really counts as a spoiler in this movie. Yeah. I mean, the the name itself implies something that's not related to Tony Stark. 
And I don't think you can give a true synopsis of this movie without saying it's about a dude that's turning into a metal monster. That's basically what it boils down I mean, to. That's There's a lot of shit around it. Man, and by metal. a lot of shit, I mean a lot of really minimalistic but surrealistic shit. Yeah. It's it's heavy. It's a heavy film. I think there is a story you can... De- I mean, there's definitely parts oh, of yeah. a story that yeah, are yeah. spelled out, but there's other things that... <laughs> are bizarre. Man, so upon second viewing, I'm going to go into this a tiny bit right now. I don't think it's quite as crazy... But I think after my initial viewing of this movie, I was like, oh man, this is the craziest thing we've done since <laughs> Visitor Q. Yeah. And I think that still might hold up. Oh yeah, I mean, I think across the boards, I would concur with that. And we've done some out there shit Yeah, we've done some point, bizarre films. But I think... This is definitely in like the top the three, The ways top that this can be interpreted, how much has he spoken about what it was truly influenced by? Because uh, I did to notes on that. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, we'll get into that. Anyway, by him, I mean there's one man who plays a big part. <laughs> yeah, this is the his baby. This, movie. this is totally his baby. So, because we gave you a brief synopsis, we like to talk about the cast and crew. And in this case, we'll lead off with our director, and that's Shinya Tsukamoto. And we've actually talked about him before because he's also an actor, of course. And we've talked about him briefly in Ichi the Killer for that episode. Which, the more I think about that episode, the more I feel like we're going to have to go back and do something to revisit that movie and give it more of a do, considering it's like a two and a half hour movie or something stupid like that. Two hour (laughs) movie. Yeah, and I think our episode was less than an hour. Yeah, our episode's less than an hour. And it was more or less, I mean, I think it was a test your fright with Jeff, so. And it was a true test, because we didn't even end up using anything from that test. No, we didn't. (laughs) We didn't. But it's okay. So I've got a couple films, of course, that Shinya has directed. Those include Hiroku the Goblin, Tetsuo 2, so spoiler is a couple of different sequels to this, Body uh, The Body Hammer. Hammer. He's also done Tokyo Fist, Bullet Ballet, A Snake of June, which is a film I highly recommend. It's a beautiful film. Uh, he's also directed the films Gemini, Vital, Haze, Nightmare Detectives 1 and 2, Tetsuo the Bullet Man, and more recently the film Killing. So along, of course, with directing, he's also our writer. He's one of our cinematographers. Along with him being a cinematographer, we also have Kei Fujiwara. Now, she's also an actress in this film, but some of the films that she has directed, edited, been the cinematographer for are the films Organ and Id. Now, uh, our editor is Shinya Sukamoto. Big surprise. Our music (laughs) was done by Chu Ishikawa. And along with, of course, doing the music for this film, he went on to do music for the film Tetsuo 2, Body Hammer, Tokyo Fist, Bullet Ballet, Gemini, a Takashi Miike film, Dead or Alive 2, A Snake of June, Vital, Haze, Tetsuo, The Bullet Man, Fires on the Plane, which is another Shinya film, and he's also the founder of two industrial music groups. One of them is the Eisenrost, and the other one is Zeitlich Virgelter. And I did listen to some of it, and it's fucking good. Nice. <laughs> it's really oh, good. <laughs> uh, I was about to say, fucking dug the soundtrack. Yeah, so... If, I've, I've always been in a hard shit anyway, but yeah. I've never been more on like the industrial side of things, but it's never been... It's always been more like I've never sought out any industrial. I've just always gotten down to it when I've heard it. Yeah, and oh. this fucking soundtrack is some killer industrial. Sick. It really is. You want to take a guess who our producer is on this film? Oh, um, I'm going to go with uh, Shinya Sukamoto. Uh, for 500, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Along with, of course, him being a producer, production companies are Japan Home Video, known as JHV, K2 Spirit, 
Kaiju Theater and Sen distributors for this was the Kaiju Theater. They helped with all media. Fox Lorber helped with the VHS release here in the States. And Original Cinema helped with the 1992 release, and that was for all U.S. media. Release dates, it had its premiere in June of 1989 in Rome, and that's in Italy, at the Fanta Festival. Then it had its premiere July 1st, 1989 across Japan, and finally here in the States on April 22nd, 1992, and that was in New York City. And I don't have any budget. This is mainly as low budget as you can go because this is all done by this group of people we're about to mention. It didn't have any opening box office numbers, and I didn't get any taglines. <laughs> so, sorry. Right. That's how minimalistic this film is. It really yeah. is. All right, so we can move on with our cast. I've already mentioned Shinya. I'll mention some of his credits here in a little bit. But our lead in this is played by Tomoroo Toguchi, and he plays the role of man slash salary man. Some of the films that he's been in, and one of them kind of blew my mind, but kind of also made sense when I saw it, was that he was in the Japanese guinea pig, Android of Notre Dame. I was like, oh, shit. That is definitely worth mentioning. That makes sense, now that you say that. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Okay. He's also in Tetsuo 2 Body Hammer. He was in Sinjuku Triad Society, which is a Takashi Miike film. He's also in Tokyo Fist. If you've ever seen any of the Gamera films, he was in Gamera 2 Attack of the Legion. He was also in Bullet Ballet, A Snake of June, and the film The Eel. Uh, and Gamera the Brave. Yeah, yep, sure was. All right, I did mention Kei Fujiwara was the cinematographer. She also plays the role of girlfriend slash woman in this film. Now, she's also starred in such films as The Neptune Factor, which I believe was more of a U.S. Yeah, that was distributed US. film, yeah. And, of course, she acted in her films Organ and the film Id. I have, and this was filmed mostly in her apartment. It was. It certainly was. <laughs> so along, of course, with acting and having the shit shot in her house, she helped with a lot of the cinematography. <laughs> All right. Along with Kay, we have Nobu Kaneoka. She plays the woman in glasses. Now, she's been in two films that I have, and that's Tetsuo 2 Body Hammer, and she was also in Tokyo Fists. I talked about the fact that Shinya is in this film. He plays the metal fetishist. Now, we've talked about the fact that he is an Or actor. just guy. Or guy, yeah. In Japanese, it's just guy, but for some guy. reason, the English is metal fetishist. Well, which, which makes sense. Whatever. Either <laughs> way. I mean, honestly, either way, yeah. it works with this movie, so... It certainly does. But, I mean, he's been in a lot of his films, of course, that he's directed, and we've talked about the fact that he was in Ichi the Killer, which is really cool. All right, I've got two other people, and that kind of rounds up the cast, but the next person I have is Neomasa Musaka. He plays the doctor in this film. He just has a brief bit, but you might have seen him in such films as Tokyo Fist. He was in The Prince's Blade. He was in Godzilla against Mecha Godzilla. You might have seen him in The Blind Swordsman Zato Ichi. He was also in Godzilla Tokyo SOS. He was in Kaiden and Zebra Man 2, Attack on Zebra City. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, and the last person I have is Renji Ishibashi. And this guy has a wealth of credits. Definitely Holy have shit. to a mention a lot of them. A few that I've seen. So some of the big names, he's also been in one of the Zatoichi films. He yep. was in Zatoichi at large. A few of the different Lone Wolf and Cubs. That's really dope. Yeah, Baby Cart in the Land of Demons. Which and White you might Hell. also recognize as being Samurai Assassin. Exactly. And then if we move along, after he was in Tetsuo, he was uh, in a couple of films with Takashi Miike. Right, such yeah, Dead as, or Alive. Yeah, Dead or Alive. He was in Audition. Yep. 
he, he was, was in, in Gozu, the, which is dope. He was in the Cowboy Bebop movie. Yeah, sure was. He was in One Miss Call. You might have seen him in Izo, which is another Takashi Miki film. He was in One Miss Call Part Two, The Great Yukai War, which is another Takashi Miki film. Sukiyaki Western Django, which I love. He's the village mayor. Yeah, dude, it's fucking awesome. He was in a bunch of the uh, 20th Century Boys films. I think all three of them. I mean, he's still acting, man, which is awesome. He's got some upcoming films, Kingdom and Another World, which looks pretty awesome. So, yeah, he's been around for quite a bit. Big name in Japanese cinema, especially, like, kind of cultish films. And he's the Tramp. Yes, he plays Tramp, which is an interesting character in this film. But, yeah, that's pretty much our cast and crew. We gave you a synopsis. We do have to give you some warnings in this film. Yeah. Oh, oh, fuck. Without spoiling so too much, yeah. So it's a body horror film Certainly where a dude's is. turning into a metal monster. Yeah, so if you're not comfortable with body horror, you're not going to be at home with this film. There's not many scenes of outright gore. No. There's like one in the beginning, but mostly it's more like the mutation type shit. Yeah, exactly. And it does involve that body horror aspect. So that's yeah. where you're going to get the gore from. And a lot of it's more reveals rather than seeing it. Exactly. There is some seeing it. But there is a lot of sexual... I mean, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of weird sexual, sexual stuff. Sexual stuff in this film. Which we're definitely going to get into more because it ties in on one of the ways you can interpret this movie in a big way. No doubt. <laughs> there is violence, of course... The There's, violence is kind of cartoony, to it, be honest. It's manga-ish, yeah. So if you don't like industrial music, if you're not into black and white films, if you don't like weird editing tricks... Yeah, I mean? there's lots of weird editing, quick cut, yeah. crazy weird angles, weird stop motion, yeah. lots of just disturbing imagery. I mean... In another kind of just synopsis, I would kind of describe this movie as if, like, a Japanese geezer had a bad trip while listening <laughs> to super early, like, Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. And Ministry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All those industrial bands from that time period. <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty interesting. And that's, I'm only saying early Nine Inch Nails in Ministry because I don't know enough industrial to say something more uh, <laughs> more uh, accurate. But, I'll spoil that in the next But section. I think that gets the point across. I've got a weird history with industrial music. Yeah, okay. I do. It's weird. <laughs> but yeah, that's pretty much, I think, all you have to worry about if you feel comfortable with weird films. If you're... Oh, there is some language. A little even bit. Even though you're reading it. Yeah. Even the dialogue's very minimalistic. Yeah, there's barely any spoken lines of dialogue in this movie. Yeah. And half of them are mushy mushy. <laughs> <laughs> I would say if you're comfortable with like early Lynch films, example, Eraserhead or Videodrome from David Cronenberg, then this is right up your alley. Yeah. And with that, let's get into how this movie made us squeal. God, what's happening to me? God, where am I? Why am I hearing these things? Oh God, what... What's going on? Oh, Jesus, come on. Oh my god, what's what's going on? Where where am I? Oh gee, why? Why? Come on. Somebody, somebody. Ah. Come on, come on, come on. Come on, somebody. Sir. Come on. Somebody, somebody's there. Somebody's gotta be there. I will shock you. Come on. Sir. Come on, Sir, you must listen to me. Sir, I only have one question. How does that make you squeal? Tetsuo, the Iron Man. Here we go. All right, Danny. I don't know. I guess what's your history with this movie? I feel like I have kind of a weird one. I'll get to it in a minute. I, I do too, actually. So I don't know how many times I've mentioned this, but in those 
early to mid 2000s when I was getting into film collecting and whatnot. There's several of us that would take a trip over to the next city over in Greenville and go record shopping, movie shopping, grab a bite of like Indian or whatever the fuck, right? So we were discovering some of these films, cyberpunk films. Uh, one of the films that kind of got me into it without actually knowing about it was years before was I seen Akira. Oh, yeah. You know, so that's another famous Tetsuo. Yeah. So (laughs) unbeknownst, I didn't realize that was a form of cyberpunk. But as far as like the Japanese cinema, I got 964 Pinocchio, which is one of Unearthed Films. And I also have Rubber's Lover. So Mm -hmm. I'm familiar with those two. And my buddy Ralph actually bought Tetsuo at the time. And we'd get together, have some beer, you know, watch films, make some food, whatever. And yeah, so it would have been around probably 2004 three four something like that when i'd first seen it and the same thing when i'd first seen it it's like wow this is fucking bizarre and i hadn't seen it since that time probably up until we reviewed this film so it's been a long while since i've seen it but i was very familiar because it left a indelible impression on me so i'd only seen this movie one time before we did it for this podcast and upon watching this movie i'm pretty sure that first time i didn't watch all of it it's hard to remember for certain, though, because I was nine years old. <laughs> yeah, it's understandable. <laughs> Jesus. I don't know how. It seems like it would stick out more because, like, I was hanging out with this kid that was one of my best friends in elementary school. But, like, if I remember right, he had kind of, like, a weird home life situation. So, like, we didn't get to hang outside school a lot. Like, yeah. it was mostly just, like, we hung out all the time at recess and shit. Because I think he was in, like, a couple of different foster homes oh, and shit over the years and stuff like that. And so we didn't get to hang out outside of school often, like it happened every now and then. But it seems like it would stick out more because it didn't happen often. But there was one time <laughs> where we watched two movies, and the other one stuck out way more to me than this one. I think we must have put this in first, and it would have been on VHS. Oh, no Because we were nine. <laughs> I don't know how he would have had it at all, especially because he didn't seem like the kind of cat, thinking back on it, that would have been into either of these things. Yeah, no doubt. But it seems like we must have put this in at like a random spot in the movie a little bit after he started mutating, because that's some of the shit that I remembered was like how the shit looked on his ankles and on his face and shit like that. And we probably were like, what the fuck is this, and turned it off, and what we ended up watching was The Giver. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. So, which, kind of similar in that they're both Japanese. Yeah. So, but that would have been, like, I was like nine. Yeah. (laughs) Jeez, man. Like, I wouldn't have known what the, I mean, looking back on it, like, I'm positive I didn't watch the entire thing now. I've thought of it for years and years, like, yeah, we watched Tetsuo with Iron Man. Yeah. And then watched The Giver. But looking back on it, there's no way we watched all of Tetsuo. Yeah, that's understandable. So I guess my first full time was just like last week. But Nice. Well, it's okay. We're both getting re-familiar with it. We both have kind of an odd history with it, in a sense. The Giver stuck with me way more. I remember that. Because yeah. I also remember, I kept trying to tell people <laughs> about that movie, and they kept thinking I was talking about MugIver. Yeah, you're like, no, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> way different. <laughs> yeah, considering no shit. Yeah, but it was cool in the fact that we actually had this as a backup for a couple of weeks because mm-hmm. of the way things get scheduled sometimes. And, you know, it's always nice to have one in the back just in case. But we were both under the impression that it's still a good film to have regardless. 
Oh, absolutely. Like, it wasn't just a backup. No, it was no, one that we've like, talked hey, about for a long fucking time. Because, yeah. I mean, it's kind of the precursor to a weird little subgenre of Asian horror that we haven't even touched on no, yet. We haven't. Some of the weird, extreme gore, body horror type shit oh, that yeah. they do. I'm familiar with it, but yeah, it's a rare subgenre. It's pretty much spawned by this film. Mm-hmm. And of course, you can, yeah. I mean, I was going to say like things like uh, Meatball Machine is a little, maybe a little bit more well known these days. Yeah, yeah, that probably Tokyo Gore Police. Yep. Films like that. I'd already mentioned like cyberpunk films, like uh, A Snake of June, which is another one in Shinya's, and it's, it's such a good film. That and uh, especially Nine Six Four Pinocchio. That is a super bizarre film. It's not one that has a high like rewatchable value, but it's still definitely worth noting because of how bizarre that film is. Okay, so you said you had some notes on some things that he's said about what the making of it, yeah. the influence of it. Now, to me, I did do a little bit of looking, but that was like two weeks ago, and I didn't make notes on it. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. But I remember not being able to find a whole lot, and I just sort of came to some of my own conclusions on some of the shit, and I was looking at the movie. And to me, the movie felt like a lot of it came out of some form of like raw emotions mm-hmm. which allows the movie to be interpreted in so many ways because the strokes that it makes are kind of broad enough that yeah. you can take it one way or another depending on how you look at it and none of them are really wrong yeah i, I agree with that because this film, and i mean you can say that about art anyway yeah, but i think you know what super i'm getting subjective, at but i know what you're saying you can drive certain things based off what's in this film there's no doubt about that and depending on your own experience, you can view it either way. Um, mm-hmm. The one thing I do like about this film, too, and I'll mention some of his influences, is that you don't necessarily have to, you know, try you don't to make have sense to ascribe of the film. a meaning to it. No, you don't. You can just accept the film for what it's worth and what it's depicting. It's super simple. surreal. Yeah, exactly. But you absolutely can do that. And it's in that case, it's a revenge monster movie, basically. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> with body horror and, like, possession elements. Exactly. So, in terms of his influences... He had mentioned that he grew up watching a lot of kaiju films, like, you know, Godzilla, and he was also inspired by a lot of manga growing up as well. So those were his early influences. And then it was such things like Ridley Scott's Alien, which you were talking about, the Geezer. Geezer. Yeah. And also Blade Runner, because that was arguably in terms of the Western world, especially with Philip K. Dick's novels in general, some of the early firms of that sci-fi, mm-hmm. cyber kind of punk element. Not to this extent with the body, you know, morphing and mutations and stuff like that. But it was still androidish, still robotic in a sense, you know. So those were some of his other influences. He also made mention of the fact that photographers like Maplethorpe, he focuses a lot on the human body. And it's not glorifying it. It's not diminishing it. It's just, you know, showing the human body for what it is, you know. So he said he was inspired by a lot of that kind of stuff. And... You know, he worked on two short films prior to making this film. He shot them on, I think it was like Super 8, and this is yeah. his first 16 millimeter. So and this is kind of a remake of one of those, right? Yeah, there was one that he did. It's called The Phantom of Regular Size. I watched a little bit of it. It's shot in color for the 8 millimeter, and it's, it's not bad. It's just super fucking raw, you know, but mm-hmm. you can tell what he was going for in that. And... Here's an interesting thing that you have to do some digging to find this out. But there's an author. This guy's name is Tamiz. He's wrote several books on Japanese cinema. And, you know, 
just exploring some of the directors and just the films in general and stuff like that. But he did write and he collaborated with Shinya on that book. But what happened prior to him filming this film, Shinya, that is, is that his father was just kind of displeased with what he was doing with film and felt like he wasn't going anywhere with it. And he wanted him to be a little bit more, I guess, a part of the cog in Japanese culture. So he told him, he's like, you know, he's like, you either pursue your silly dreams of making movies or, you know, you get your degree and become successful. Because he said, you're either successful or you're a failure. He says, right now you're a failure. And he pretty much got kicked out of his home by his parents. And because of those two short films that he did prior to this, he funded all that shit himself. And this is the result. So in part, he was inspired by his dad telling him he can't do it. So this is a big F you to his dad in a way. <laughs> so this movie is crazily surreal at times. There's is. definitely at least one, maybe two, just full-on dream sequences. I mean, one of them, I think it's never made clear with the girl in the subway quite how real any of that was. Yeah, there are some bizarre sequences where he's like in one place, he gets knocked somewhere else, and then he comes right back. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that is, is like, what in the fuck is going on with that? How do you interpret that? The pegging scene seemed to be a... Oh, that's a nightmare a dream, sequence. Yeah, a nightmare yeah. sequence. But like the subway scene, I'm not sure if it happened or not. You know, I want to say, I think it probably did to a weird extent. And the reason I say that is just the way the film gets played out is that I feel like the well, metal fetishist is trying to. I was about to say the metal fetishist was involved, kind of in that scene, and I think yeah. that does mean that it was probably real, yeah, or exactly. as real as this movie can be. <laughs> Which is still bizarre because yeah. you know she's just prodding it with a pencil in this metal scrap or whatever. First question is how did it get there, right? You know, second question would be how did he not see it, and then you know, third is like there's no way that should get played out yeah. the way it did. I don't know. This movie made me think a lot. I'm going to throw out there was two main themes that stood out to me throughout the movie, and I'm going to try not to let the weed sidetrack me too much <laughs> as I, I understand as I lay them both down. But I feel like, especially upon first viewing, going just straight through and taking everything in order, this movie is a lot about like God. How did I write this down? Like modern anxiety. And feeling increasingly, like, useless in the face of, like, modernization yeah. and automation and just being so small in a giant city and almost wanting to, like, take revenge for that and wanting to regain some semblance of power. Yeah, yeah. But then, in light of a lot of the crazy shit that happens, especially in, like, the last, well, fuck, like, two-thirds of the movie... You can, I think, reinterpret a lot of those scenes, too, where it seems to be also the story of a guy coming to terms with the fact that he's a homosexual. I mean, I can see that, too. Uh... (laughs) And I think you can kind of tie both things together if you couple modernization with the idea of rejecting traditional values. Yeah, yeah, for sure. This film really is a commentary, especially at that time, on the state of Japanese culture, you know, it was being very, I mean, very modernized. I mean, you've got the computer. We're on the cusp of the computer digital age at that point, 89, mm-hmm. just a few years away from the internet and what have you. So there's this big shift going on too. There's this corporatization 
from like the 80s, especially here in the States with, you know, Reaganomics and just big boom and credit. And so it's just a hustle. It's like a dog eat dog world. And you're right. It's Wall Street. Gordon Gekko. It really is. It really is. And which is funny in a sense because the character of the salary man, I believe you can interpret it this way, is that Shinya was making a comment that that was what his parents and what society wants you to be. Mm -hmm. And in, in the other essence is he is the metal fetishist. He's somebody who he is adapting, but he's doing it rebelliously. I was about to say, like... Especially when you throw in the sexual themes and the fact that they do basically enter into a homosexual relationship by the end of this movie. I mean, movie. yeah, they merge into one, which is, it's unique in a way too, because you can view this film a little bit in a way that it's... But I think it is more about rejecting the traditional yeah, norms exactly. overall. But oh, it, man, yeah. it did feel like when I was examining it through that scope, that the main difference in the characters was that the salary man was still fighting against how society would view him for rejecting societal norms, which was the monstrous aspect of it. Yeah. Whereas the metal fetishist seemed to gain power in the fact that he had internalized the fact that he was different. Yeah. I think that's what's the cool thing about the fact that he's merging the metal with the man, is mm -hmm. you're having... You know, somewhere down the road, you know, we've talked about it with not necessarily you and I, but just in modern culture with AI and, you know, you talked about like automation and things like that, where eventually robots and machines and metal and all that shit is going to supersede humans' capabilities of doing things. So we have to adapt. In a weird way, it's almost prophetic, you know, that you can see these things far ahead of its time before it happens. Well, I felt like some of the salaryman's horror reminded me of some of the panic before Y2K. There was huge panic, which is weird thinking about it now. Yeah. It's really weird thinking about it. I mean, I, mean, I, was, one of the, was, I was one of those kids where I was like, y'all know this isn't going to do shit, right? Yeah, I was on board with that too. It's like, it's just another panic. I played with computers enough at that point in my life where I'm like, y'all are dumb. <laughs> yeah, I was like, uh, this date's not going to fuck anything. Uh, get out of here. No, I think there ended up being like two things it fucked with. I can't remember. I looked, I, I, I saw it once, but I know there was two things it didn't fuck with is you and me. That's right. <laughs> It didn't fuck with me at all. <laughs> it's funny, but... Some of the emotion that seemed to be conveyed through the crazy-ass cinematography combined with the actor himself. Yeah. A lot of it, I mean, felt like a representation of some sort of anxiety to me, and it reminded me very much of that time period. Yeah, which is neat, too, and I've talked about this a lot, too, with having, like, uh, the duality and nature and just... You know, you can look at it as anxiety, and you can also see it, too, as somebody who is accepting the fact that they're merging with this, even amongst that anxiety. You know, mm -hmm. it, uh, Tokyo in itself is just a super busy fucking... A lot of people, it's just a lot going on. It is a dog eat kind of dog thing going on there. So, uh, in that respect, it's an interesting social commentary, especially what he was going through at that time. Mm -hmm. To start getting into the, I mean, from the beginning a little bit... The effects when the fucking metal fetishist puts in the fucking metal rod in the it's beginning good. was dope. Yeah. I was like, ooh, he's actually, you know, doing some gory bits with the gashing of his thigh. And then one shot I do like, too, which is, I mean, it's probably an infamous shot, is him putting that steel rod mm -hmm. across his teeth and then jabbing that shit in. You're like, ooh. And then the maggots, you're like, oh, yeah, this looks good. It looks what, all good. What I took really note of, especially the second time through, 
after I knew how like the salary man part of it was going to play out and sort of all the emotions he goes through and the shit he ends up going through, I did notice the sort of modernization theme play out. I can't remember if it's exactly as soon, if it's the next cut, but it's sometime within the next like two seconds after the uh, metal fetishist shoves that metal rod into his leg for whatever reason, since he's <laughs> yeah. the metal fetishist, I suppose. Yeah. Even though it doesn't seem like he gains any sort of powers till after he's been killed. But anyway, that's something else entirely. But, <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Um, they show like three pictures of what I wrote down as like natural athletes of just like old school runners yeah, that no, don't have funny metal in them. Yeah. And then they burn up. Yeah. It's funny too because I did write down as my header for that first section is metal fetishists and sprinters. Because yeah. he does have a lot of cutouts of, yeah, it looks like athletes, track and field athletes. You know, and as soon as he puts that in, they burn up. Yeah, which it's funny, yes, because I also saw it as a form of foreshadowing. Reason being is because when he does see the maggots, he, he runs, runs out into the street. And then later on in the film, he's wearing, it's not a number on his back, but he's got like an X. Kind of mm. like a, an athlete or tra- you know, a mm-hmm. runner's number or whatever. So it's like, yeah, it's a little bit of foreshadowing. When he runs out there, I love the crazy ass intercut with so the good. like the fetishization of the car grill. Yeah, <laughs> I read somewhere too where someone it, it kind of makes sense if you look at it this way, is that you can look at it as them of course merging at that time. So they've already kind of had a weird merging mm-hmm. the the fetishist and salaryman, and to the way that they are playing this jazzy style of music, it's a little romanticized. So it's like you have the metal fetishist running into a car that's metal. And there's this already uh, kind of like a love thing going on because a guy is a fetishist. So you can look at it, I guess, a little bit like that. Like there's this weird almost chemistry at that point. I mean, once again, that's one of those things that backs up the fact that this could all also be an allegory for a dude realizing a guy in a relationship realizing that he needs to be living his true self, which is as a homosexual. But, you know, you hit the I think you really hit the pin on the head when you were talking about the social norms aspect, especially if you know a little bit about Japanese culture. It's like even though there's some interesting subculture stuff that, of course, that happens, but on the you know upper crust is that it's a very conservative culture. It's like mm-hmm. a lot of people don't even like being touched, <laughs> like handshakes or hugs or it's just like, nope, straight to business. And so many of his interactions with his girlfriend were superficial. Or the other thing I took note of, especially when you see the flashback, the way everything played out, out with, yeah. with them hitting the metal fetishist, that she seems to get excited at the extinction of modernity, however yeah. you'd say the fucking word, of being modern. Yeah. When she's frightened of him and his giant metal fucking cock, <laughs> yeah. until she stabs him, and as the modern version of him is dying, she gets excited and jumps on the fucking cock and kills herself. Yeah, exactly. As they kill a guy who's the metal fetishist, yeah, exactly. Exactly. she gets excited. You're absolutely right. There is this. She's a weird reinforcing of the old norms. Yeah. She has this hypersexualized nature about her that involves, in this case, tragedies, you know? What's interesting to note is we talked about the fact that he's influenced by Cronenberg, like stuff with Videodrome and shit like that. But Cronenberg has a film called Crash about people who get off on. That's right. Who are in car accidents. So, uh, you know, 
maybe Cronenberg caught the whiff that he was influencing <laughs> this guy, and he's like, I want to pay tribute. I love the what would be the uh, title sequence. Yeah, I wrote that down. With him just so freaking out in the factory. Yeah. It's fucking killer. That's like that's a killer opening sequence. It, it says did so like, much about the character. It did feel like an industrial music video a little yeah. bit. You know? That's something too, I guess this is a good maybe segue is I was talking about there's a weird history I have with industrial music. Oh yeah, yeah. I wanna hear right. this. So when I was like nine, ten years old, one of my uncles he was a big audiophile and he bought a lot of music. He was real big into like stereo speakers and shit like that. And he was also getting into industrial music in the late 80s, early 90s. You already mentioned like Nine Inch Nails, but I was also exposed to stuff like KMFDM. Oh, I like me some KMFDM. Front 242, yeah. stuff like that. That was, you know, a little bit more abrasive. I didn't know about Skinny Puppy, but they're another band you can kind of throw in that mix. But. Yeah, I was like 19 years old hearing that shit. You know, we've had Riley on the show. He's known fact he's, he loves fucking Trent Reznor and yeah. Nine Inch Nails. So I told him, I was like, Who did eventually work with. Yeah. and On uh, Three, right? Yeah. Pretty what? Was it Bullet Man? I think it's called. Yeah. Yeah, so eventually he did. But I was thinking that too. It's like, it's interesting because Chewy Shikawa was already doing that music too. So he couldn't have been influenced by the bands that we just mentioned. Because it was happening at the same time. Right. So that's another interesting thing about how much that influenced possibly cinema here in the States a little bit later on. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Sort of across the board. and Yeah. Fuck. It's such a neat sound. But you're right. I mean, that title sequence is fucking dope. (laughs) That sequence was one of the things that sort of locked me into, like, the modern anxiety mindset. With, like, this corporate salary man in this total automated blue collar environment something that he basically can't survive in and he's caught in the middle of just listening to and going crazy and fucking what i like too about that is the contrast between he actually does that in the phantom of regular size because you know Mm -hmm. uh, same actors in it and he has the same moment but it's in two different settings like it happens i think in the train station in the phantom of regular size and of course this takes place more in uh kind of an industrial setting but the thing i like about it too so you talked about the anxiety is that is actually shot in like a dark background so that you could kind of interpret it as like a pit that mm-hmm. he's falling into or just the abyss that he's a part of now. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's so much bigger than him and he's inconsequential. Yeah, in it. he's feeling swallowed at that point. Yeah, it was really cool. So yeah, that was really good. A little bit later on too is after he discovers that metal shaving. I, I wrote They have the mahi mahi moshi moshi. <laughs> the moshi moshi. Once again, that was one of those things where it's just like his relationship is so superficial. Yeah, superficial. She feels like a beard. No, it's interesting. That's the first time, too, that she kind of makes mention of the hit and run. We don't know to what extent, but she makes that mention. And then subsequently we get the underground train station sequence. That was pretty fucking gnarly. Okay, so it's going to be impossible. I'm just going to, I'm going to just continually intercut in the, the allegory for him realizing he's going to have to live a homosexual existence. Yeah. Because... If the car wreck could be just her finding out that he had seen this dude on the side. I mean, possibly. And so that's why you could have that superficial of a phone call where they're still dealing with the fallout from that. Yeah. The reason I wanted to bring it up one more time, for sure, because especially because of the time period, I don't think they were dealing with it as much. I think it was more of a crisis here in America. But because of the time period and the way that the ending goes, especially once they are metal, is Rust AIDS. And then after he had the encounter with the metal fetishist who was infected with maggots 
when they encountered him. And then he ends up, although his girlfriend gets killed technically beforehand by his metal dick, (laughs) before she ends up being replaced by the metal fetishist, she first has to go through the rust decomposition herself. Yeah. I view it probably a little different. But I know. I, I I'm just, I'm that. throwing it out there. I'm like, yeah. oh man, like once you start no, viewing it there, through. There is this, because this movie does play with the sexuality of people in this case. Um, once again, I think we're way more on track with it just bucking cultural norms. Yeah. But once you but start there is viewing it. To, yeah, to be said about that aspect of the film as well. Because mm-hmm. you can totally interpret it that way. The way it plays out, like you were saying. The metal fish is reborn out of the dead woman after she goes through a decomposition, rusting, etc. I also look at it, too, with a rusting decomposition. They end it's up, like doing away with the old and trying to assimilate to the new, you know, right. the new world, so to speak. Their chase is their rekindled romance when she's done. And <laughs> I mean, I hurt, totally see that, too. The hurt feelings that are there yeah. and the coming to terms with the fact that choosing to be with each other, especially during that time period, without very much knowledge of the disease, might mean a death sentence for both of them, and them deciding to say, fuck the world and go with it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, it's it's an interesting amalgamation of all that stuff, you know? <laughs> the one thing that I kind of got, got a little chuckle out of is, I know we're skipping, but all the way at the end when they finally do merge and they, they come out as is like this dick. giant phallic. Yeah, I was like, what the fuck? But it's just, you know, it's like, um, just the way it felt like Pinky and the Brain to me at that point. It's like, oh. <laughs> take over the world. That's hilarious. What no. we do every day. <laughs> Boy. I think I've hit on all of the little marks I was going to make yeah. about all that now. I think it's a little bit more about blocking cultural norms. But. Yeah. And that's what I was saying, because I don't know much about Shinya himself, but just the things that I have read is he talks about the way that he incorporates human nature, sexuality, Mm -hmm. specifically in his films. And he does it from both points of view, from feminist and in this case more of a chauvinistic, but there is hyper-femininity too with some of the characters. He says eventually what they do is they merge into one, so it becomes like one sex. And I think that might be a little bit of what he's doing in this, maybe not as much, you know, up front. I like your take on it, too, with, like, you know, doing away with social norms and trying to accept who you are regardless. Yeah, there's just something to be said about how he incorporates that stuff in his films. Snake of June is a perfect example because he talks about the reason he named it June. I know this, oh, we're talking about two different films, but this is getting back to the sexual nature of the films is that he says that women tend to be a little bit more sensual in those rainy seasons because you're already kind of hot and wet and stuff <laughs> like that so things are a little bit more centralized but he also talks about the fact that in his films they eventually merge into one this is another example of it that's what i'm getting at of course before all that actually happens with the girlfriend he has the nightmare where he's, <laughs> he's getting sodomized yeah <laughs> yeah i was like man that's fucking wild because she is an exotic dancer with like this snake-like metal probe coming out of her mm-hmm. almost like medusa character too i fucking laughed so hard when she went in dry and it started smoking yeah <laughs> oh. <laughs> hello <laughs> which is it's funny in a sense and i don't mean like laugh out loud funny but it's just 
awkward and is right after he has that dream sequence he goes into the bathroom not long after he comes out of the bathroom they're having sex and he's like feeding her and it gets like super bizarre yeah and then he i wrote down like he goes to this quasimodo phase where he <laughs> hides and he i don't want to see me. but also it's like i wonder how much of that is influenced by lynch a little bit with like the elephant man oh okay he's like you're hiding your disfigurement or whatever mm-hmm. but then he reveals himself and then it becomes hypersexualized again with his metal cock. And there's something to be said about how she gets off on that, too, which you've already mentioned. I would say I was pretty pissed off that the metal fetishist decided he needed to turn those poor kitties to fucking Yeah, metal, metal creatures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, my uh, little poor kitties. Yeah, no, I was like, that kind of sucks. But And at first I was like, maybe they'll turn badass, but no, they didn't. <laughs> no, I was like, yeah, maybe they'll, they'll turn into like Voltron or something, but right? they didn't. <laughs> No, one thing I can say is like during some of the sequences too, is I like the use of the pixelation stop motion as they're going throughout the streets. Oh, because then it, it totally brought me right back to Takashi Miike and Ichi. It's like, oh, that's kind of neat. I can see how he's incorporating that in his film based off of this stuff. And I really liked that stuff, but I think my favorite use of it was there was the sequence where it wasn't so much. Like, the decomposition, what they kept calling rust to me just looked like lint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're saying. And I like how lint looks in stop motion. <laughs> like, it's been used in enough, like, industrial-type videos and yeah. shit that, like, I really dig actually how that looks. But I thought the coolest part was there was, like, two minutes where instead of, like, the lint decomposition, it was, like, wires and tubes pulling that decomposing skull apart yeah i think that was like maybe my favorite visual sequence in the whole movie there are some really interesting things too it's like when a salary man is he's like in the bag he almost looks like he's being reborn too he's in the sack oh yeah yeah and the one thing that i started thinking about probably the main thing i started thinking about was if they shot this in her apartment how much fucking shit did they have to put in there and not only that i know he had mentioned that they saved this set from the Phantom of the regular size. But I was like, man, that's a lot of shit. And I can see now why it took him 18 months to film it and why it was such a fucking nightmare for people to be in it. Just because of all the stuff that he was doing organically. It's like, that's a lot of fucking stuff to account for. Yeah. I think most of the, the shit was, what, just like old TV parts yeah. that he was just gluing to them? But even, even like you were saying with the tubes and the wires, and it's like, that's a lot of stuff you have to go out and collect and then bring back and film and put well, it together. That's a lot of fucking stop motion. Yeah. Some of that stop motion all over town. and It's bizarre, but I like it. Somebody had mentioned that some of his form of editing is called staccato, mm-hmm. which is just like real brief cuts and... But he's, he's incorporating all these different elements, too. He's using, like, very minimalistic lighting, too. It's called expressionistic. He's using certain techniques that still pay off in the long run in this film. I did think it was funny. They're like, once they were fucking giant metal cock, <laughs> they're like, let's go destroy the city. And then they were just going really politely down the middle of the road. Yeah. And he maybe used that gun twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's kind of funny. One thing that it made me think about, too, is when they're going through the streets, it's like, man, if I ever have the desire to travel in Japan, dude, I'm going to have to need a tour guide because it looks like it'd be super easy to get lost in that motherfucker. Uh, I'm going to need something to ward off the giant metal cocks. That, too. (laughs) Yeah. But the thing that's really neat on top of this film, right, is how cultish it is, how unique it was to that time period, Japanese cinema in general, how it's influenced a bevy of things since then. 
is I start thinking about the films that I'm more familiar with and like I didn't realize how much they were influenced by this film until now after seeing mm-hmm. all this shit and it makes sense once you start watching some of the films we already mentioned like Tokyo Gore Police and I think there's like Mutant Squad Girls but they always have this weird mutation appendage that grows it's usually robotic and stuff like mm-hmm. that so it makes total sense yeah you got like the Mega Blaster arm yeah exactly you're like that's weird. Where the fuck did they come up with that? It's like, well, watch Tetsuo. I'll explain everything. I love that bit where he's just like fucking clapping with one oh, hand yeah, and taking the building down around him and shit. Oh my god, there's so it's much It's so cool good, shit. dude. Yeah. Weird shit that it doesn't make any sense when you're yeah. just talking about it outside this movie. Yeah. Out of context, it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? But there are so many cool elements in this film and there's something to be said, too, about people who are willing to take the risk like he did right in terms of like social norms and just trying to be a part of i mean he could have been a part of big studios too because there's no big studio in japan that would have released this ever Mm -hmm. so he took a risk it paid off it sparked this whole subgenre of films that probably i don't know what to call it does it have does that subgenre have a name but not really i mean outside of cyberpunk not really yeah, I mean, and that cyberpunk applies to a lot more than just yeah, the films that we're thinking Yeah, it's just the films. Of. I mean, it also, there's writings. Um, there's one gentleman who wrote Neuromancer, I think, in the 80s. Uh, yeah, uh, Gibbons. Yeah, so, I mean, there's some stuff or like Gibson, that. Gibson, William Gibson. Yeah, we've already um, talked about Geezer and really Scott. Yeah, but that's the thing, like, the subgenre that this Spawns. movie, the, the weird gore body horror strictly pretty much japanese films yeah that this movie has spawned does it have a name nah because I mean, it's, it's, it's not, so, it's not something it's like not new french that. extremity nah, but nah. there's definitely a weird swath of movies that it's, you're yeah, like you're right. oh this there, was influenced by this, this is a subgenre and there's a subgenre right below it yeah <laughs> yeah which i wouldn't know exactly what to call it outside of japanese cyberpunk <laughs> weird crazy ass yeah, Things that right. were just, influenced by this. Yeah, I mean, we've noted, you know, Cronenberg, his influence, probably some of David Lynch's early stuff too, Razorhead stands out. But I mean, even with early Japanese films too, I was reading a little bit of like early Japanese horror films, especially mm-hmm. in the 50s, is that they used kind of minimalist approaches too with lighting and black and white and just some of the subject matter. So, I mean, he was influenced once again by stuff he grew up with, the time period he was in and just saying fuck it you know right which is really cool but it's really neat visiting films like this and the fact that it's an hour seven is not bad either no it's super easy it to feels get like in. there's a lot more that's gonna, going on this movie feels longer than an hour seven but not necessarily in a bad way no, no. it's just that they pack a lot into a short time yeah they really do man and uh keep in mind and we've mentioned it too that it took 18 months for him to finish that shit and it was just we talked about how little input there was you know outside of him and and fujiwara most people were quitting and didn't want to be a part of the project because of how strenuous it was yeah yeah but by the end it was basically what like him and the actors pretty much i think even then it was like pretty much him and yeah maybe just the leads yeah fuck i highly recommend this movie overall i've no actually doubt. been trying to get patrick to watch it i think he would i think he would actually appreciate this film probably for its technical merits mm-hmm. i would hope he appreciate it for some of the social commentary just making too but i think just from a filmmaker standpoint he probably would 
Quincy's slightly interested in it, just yeah. for somebody else that's been I on the show. I tell Riley, it's like it's pretty much just like a big industrial music video with some weird shit going on. And I hope that if you haven't watched it yet, that listening to us right now made you decide to. Though, I mean, I really hope you watched it before you listen to us ramble yeah. about it and give it all away. But it's not like there's any true plot to give away. It's just a no. bunch of crazy fucking shit. Happens. It's just another one of those things where you're thrown in the middle of a story with just a few characters mm. and... You're like, all right, this is bizarre, but let's go for it. Yep. Do we know for sure what we're doing next? We don't know for sure what we're doing next week. Yeah, I don't know. We're still reaching out, but we'll we'll find out. Until then, hopefully you'll come listen to us next week, no matter (laughs) what it is. One of the things is we will probably be giving a reaction to the new Pet Cemetery. Excited about that. I just bought tickets for that, Mm -hmm. so we're going to be going to that on Sunday. Not right when it comes out, but on that same opening weekend. So. I mean, honestly, you might hear that before you hear this, so... That's a good chance, yeah. (laughs) In order to keep listening to us, please hit subscribe, however you currently are. If it's on Apple iTunes, please, like, rate and review us, because it helps us keep up in the algorithm and all that good shit, so that more people get to hear us. What else? We got a website you can go to, www.friedsquirms.com. It's got links to listen to us up at the top. The latest episode streaming down at the bottom. The portals to all of our social media right through the middle, including all of our back archives for all of our past episodes. Maybe you don't give a shit what we think about Candyman, but we also talk about Housewife. Exactly. So the one thing I do like about the way it's set up, too, is like you said, there's an archive. So you can see what we've done on a month-to-month basis and kind of get an idea of what we like to do. So, yeah, maybe some of the films aren't your bag. By this point, 110 episodes, I'm hoping a couple are. So, <laughs> yeah. if not, fucking hit us up through the website. You can contact us or at squirmcast at gmail.com and let us know what film we should hit up to get you to listen to it. Yeah, exactly. We love recommendations. We love hearing from you if you're in the industry, whether you're a filmmaker, actor, or just, you know, miscellaneous crew. We want to talk we would to love people. To hear from we you. want to find out how some of this shit actually gets made rather than, like, us just fucking guessing. Yeah, because so, at this point, we're just, we're just being very good students. We're just being really fucking stoned. <laughs> a lot of that. But, no, it's always nice to talk to people who have more of an inside view. And hopefully, the further we go along, we'll have chances to talk to people like that. That'd be sweet. Yeah, so hit us um, up. I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried Squirms. Out. Out.